Well, amen. When we began our study of Leviticus 16 weeks ago, I told you that if someone were to ask me why Leviticus, that my answer would have been or would be because God's goal of creation and redemption was to dwell with his people and for us to dwell with him. And Leviticus, and what Leviticus does is answer the question, how is that possible? And before we began, we said we really already knew the answer to that. How is that possible? And the answer, of course, is Jesus. For apart from him, uh, we would never be able to dwell with him. And we have been reminded of that every week for the last 16 weeks. Over the last three and a half months, I think we have come to a place of better understanding our, we, have, we have a better understanding of the gravity of the problem that had to be overcome as well as to the lengths and, and the significance of the solution and the lengths to which God had to go to solve that problem. We have, we have seen what God had to do to make life with Him in His house possible. And we've grown in our understanding of The holiness of God, we've grown in our understanding of the extent of our sin. We've grown in our understanding of the inescapable need of salvation that we have. We've grown in our understanding of God's plan for provision and his fulfillment of that provision for us. It's been a wonderful study. And I think we also now have not only a greater understanding, but we also have a framework Not only to better understand, but to better communicate what it is Christ has done for us. And I think it's safe to say, as I've thought about it, as we've gone about this study, I think it's safe to say that it would be difficult and may even be impossible to ever fully grasp what Christ has done for us apart from the book of Leviticus. So the bottom line is, we've studied Leviticus that we might see and love Jesus more. And I pray that's the case. I pray that is true for you. And this week, uh, our final week, nothing's changed, nothing's different, all will be the same, it all still applies, there isn't anything new. Our goal is to see Jesus and to love Him more. And what we're going to do over these next few minutes is walk through these last two chapters, though Daniel and did he did a fine job and we only read through 26. We are going to just briefly touch on 27. We're going to kind of give it a glancing blow. But we're going to follow the outline that's in the back of your bulletin. We're going to look at three things. God's kind intentions, his firm stipulations, and then finally his gracious determination and his kind intentions His firm stipulations, and then His gracious determination. But before we jump in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would You, by Your Spirit, as You have done throughout the fall, would You allow us to appreciate the richness of Your story of redemption that You have graciously made us a part, of which You've graciously made us a part? We would ask that in these moments that that You would allow us to Again, see Christ. We, we thank you for revealing him in the pages of this book through promise and shadow. Would you, as you have been, help us to understand them? 
And may we leave here appreciating more fully what is presently and forever ours in Christ. May we be more confident in, may we rest more fully in, may we trust more deeply in him and what he has done for us and gifted to us. And I pray these things in the name of Christ who both earned the blessings that we receive and took on the curses that we deserve. Amen. And amen. Well, I mentioned last week that if anybody doubted the goal that I have been bringing us back to week after week, all we had to do was look into the tabernacle and at the lampstand and the table of the bread of presence. And the reality is that we could say the same for the first table of the law that is actually summarized in verses one of two, one and two of Leviticus 26. In these two verses, God's kind intention is revealed. His desire, again, is to dwell with his people. He is a jealous God. And those aren't my words. Those are Moses' words from Deuteronomy chapter 4. And when I say he is a jealous God, God didn't want the people desiring or looking to or, or worshiping anyone or anything else other than him. It was God's desire to fellowship with them and his desire was for their fellowship to be exclusively with him and none other. It was it was his desire for the the creator to fellowship with the creation, that which had been created in his image. He wanted them to observe the rhythms, those holy rhythms that he had created by the weekly and seasonal and special festivals and feasts that were specifically put in place for that purpose of fellowship. He wanted them to revere and not to profane his name or his person or his place in which that he had chosen uh, to, to meet with them and to dwell with them. They were to enjoy that regular and intimate fellowship between a mighty redeemer and those who had been redeemed. He wanted that between the two of them. They were to, well, he took initiative to make that happen. He took initiative because it was the kind intention to actually to use Paul's words in Ephesians. It was the kind intention of his will to do so. And we ask, well, why? Why would that be the kind intention of his will? And there are three reasons, really, when we think about it. One is that it was for his glory. It was his it was something that he alone was worthy of that reverence, that all that devotion, that commitment was he was alone worthy of those things. Secondly, it was his desire. He wanted to. He wanted to have that fellowship. And thirdly, it was for the good of those who would not, because they could not, initiate or establish that fellowship on their own. He alone had to do it. And we say that, and we know that to be true, because as we've said from the beginning, that there was a problem, and all along that problem was, that that was hindering that fellowship, was their sin. Right? He was holy. They were not. There was a great chasm. And as we defined earlier in our study, when we speak of God's holiness, we're speaking of more than one single attribute of his. We're talking about more than just his the the purity of his goodness and righteousness. We're talking about his quintessential nature. 
When we speak of God's holiness, we're, we're talking about, well, and these words would, uh, are going to sound familiar because I've quoted them before, but R.C. Sproul says that his holiness involves his transcendence, his magnificence, to that sense in which God is higher and superior to anything there is in the current realm. Again, he says the simplest way to discuss this is to say that which is holy is that which is different, separate, and other. Right? God is altogether other than his creation. And so when we speak of man's holiness, we are speaking of that moral and ethical purity that we are to have and a brightness and a cleanness. And so it's also about being set apart from those around us. And so we're talking about a a difference or a uniqueness in comparison to others. And you, you put all that together and the call to be holy is to be clean and set apart, right? Because what is unclean cannot be in the presence of that which is holy. The two go hand in hand. So because God is pure and righteous and transcendent and magnificent and different and separate, those who dwell with him must be spiritually clean. We must be morally and ethically pure, different and unique from the world around us. And that's a non-negotiable. It's necessary to both quote and to paraphrase the words of Dr. Morales. He says, without holiness, no one will see God. It didn't matter. This is a great statement. It didn't matter if man was to enter and abide in God's house or if God was to come out of his house. Holiness was inescapable, unalterable. It was an inescapable, unalterable, necessary condition. If there was to be intimate relationship with God, man's character would have to be conformed to his. Something would have to change. And that is why the entire sacrificial system and the ordination of the priesthood and the ceremonial law regarding what was clean and unclean and the day of atonement and and the expectations of how they should live differently among those of their past in Egypt and those of their future in Canaan were all put into place. It's why the stipulations, the firm stipulations and the blessings for obedience and the curses of disobedience were all, were all not only displayed and put into place, but communicated to the people of God. And we see those firm stipulations and those blessings and cursings in verses 3 to 39 in chapter 26. Stipulations and blessings, stipulations and blessings and cursings. And in some cases, we feel like they're, they're somewhat out of place. But in reality, in, ancient, uh, in, in, in the ancient Near East, stipulations were very much a part of, of regular covenants between peoples. And so it makes sense when we hear it in the context of the law that we read here in Leviticus. I, I want us to walk through. So I hope, hope you have your Bibles open. We're going to walk through and look at some of these things together. In verse 3, the Lord says very clearly, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will... And then he proceeds to list all of the blessings that he's going to provide. He says, um, it's, there's going to be a lot of rain. There's going to be an excess of harvest. The harvest is going to be longer than it normally has been or normally is. You're not going to live in fear. You're not going to have to worry about your enemies. You're going to be at peace. You're going to be at rest. You're going to be secure. You're not going to be in harm's way. And when you do go into battle, you're going to win even though you're outnumbered. 
He said, when you obey, you're going to drive the people out of the land, your enemies out of the land. You're going to be fruitful. You're going to multiply. You're going to increase in number. In other words, the nation is going to grow. But all of those things, all of those things pale in comparison to one specific blessing. All of those are great and wonderful things, but there's one blessing in particular that we, that our, our attention should be drawn to, and it's found in verse 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12. As wonderful as all of those other things were, this was it. It says, he says, and I will walk with you. I will walk among you. I will be your God. You shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Their obedience, the Lord says your obedience, their obedience would result in his presence among them. And literally the language talks about tabernacling as we have seen. But beyond tabernacling, there's this idea of walking to and fro and back and forth and up and down. And the illusion, the illusion is, I believe, obvious to the type of fellowship that humanity experienced in Eden prior to the fall. God's wanting that to be restored. And so he redeemed them. He wants to walk in the midst of those that he redeemed. And he set them free from their slavery. And he was their God. And they were his people. And he desired that unhindered, unfettered fellowship with them. And so much so, because of that desire, there were also, he also laid out not only those blessings for obedience, but also the curses for disobedience. He laid out the curses of disobedience. And you'll notice that list is a lot longer. And it includes things like disease and pestilence and death of people and animals and famine and hunger. Hunger to the point, and this is difficult to hear, but hunger to the point of cannibalism. But like the blessings... There was an ultimate curse to which all of the others paled in comparison to. And when we read through that list, we think, how can things get even worse than those things that he listed? But there's one in particular in verse 32 that puts all the others kind of aside. And he says, and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And here it is. And I will scatter you among the nations. And I will unsheathe the sword after you and you shall land or, or, and your land shall be desolate and your cities shall be a waste. The ultimate curse was exile. And exile meant that they would not experience fellowship with each other, but more importantly, they would not experience fellowship with the Lord because being in exile, there would be no tabernacle. His abiding presence, that, 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 that place, right? That place in which he had chosen to dwell and that place that had become a meeting place with him and his people, gone. And so we see and we hear the point we've been driving, <laughs> driving home every week since September. 
over and over again, there is nothing more important. There is nothing greater. There is nothing more prized. Nothing more to be appreciated or sought after than the presence of the Lord. And there's nothing more grievous and nothing more to be avoided than the absence of the Lord. And that's why God exhibits throughout the chapter, He exhibits this gracious determination. He wants them to get it. And here's what I mean. Laying out the expectations and the warnings was in itself gracious. Right? The people of Israel didn't have to wonder. How are we to obey? He wants us to obey. We're not to disobey. And he didn't leave them in a place of, well, what does that look like? How do we do that? He he lays that out specifically. And that's gracious. That shows that gracious determination. I want you to know, here's what it is. Here's what you should follow. Here's what you should not do. And we see throughout this chapter, as Daniel read, and I had him, I selected those re- readings on purpose because in that, he, he, we see throughout the rest of the chapter that he exhibited patience. It, it wasn't one and done. Right? Listen, verses 14 and 16. But if you will not listen to me, And will not do all these commandments if you spurn my statutes and if you should abhor my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. And then in verse 18, he says, and if in spite of all of this, right, if if despite this and you go ahead and disobey anyway, he says, and in spite of all this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you, discipline you sevenfold for your sins. And then he lists A few more things on what they can expect for their disobedience. But then in verse 21, he says, then if you walk contrary to me, in other words, if if this didn't do the trick. And you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And then verse 23, and if by this discipline, you are not turned to me again. Here's a list. And if you don't. If you continue in your disobedience despite that, and here's another list, and if you continue to do that, and and if you continue, and back and forth, and he says, and if you continue, if by this discipline you're not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And then he says the same thing in verse 27. And when we go back and read, we also notice that each list becomes more intense. And we get that as parents, right? Those of you that are parents, we get that, right? Your child makes their first advance. I think Wesley is starting to walk, and so he's going to make, you know, it's like the minute they start walking, they're going to find the outlet in the wall, right? There's just something about that thing. It's got two faces. It looks like it needs to be played with. And what do we do? They go to the outlet and they, they move their finger. We, we move their hand away and say no. And they go back to it. And then we grab their hand and we squeeze it and we say no. And then when they go back to it again and we take their hand and we swat their hand and, and then with a little more emphatic no. And then they go back. 
And the swat and the intensity of our no intensifies, right? That's what the Lord's doing. I want you to obey. If you disobey, here's the consequence. And if you continue, the the consequence is going to intensify. And if you continue, the consequence is going to intensify. But it's, it's gracious determination all along. Patience as they go. And then we get to verse 40. In verse 40, it says, but if, if, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity. Look at what it says. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. God's gracious determination is most obvious in the grace of repentance. The whole time, all along, the Lord offers at any point along the way, regardless of the stage of discipline, the offer of repentance is made. The people are offered forgiveness should they repent of their sins. At any point, should they admit that they had acted, and listen to the strength of this word, the treachery. If they they acknowledged their treachery against Him, and the fact that they had set their face against Him, He still would relent. He would relent, He would hear their plea, but notice what He would remember. He would remember not them, but His promise to Abraham, Isaac, Isaac. And Jacob, right? The promise that he had made to their forefathers, the promise that he had swore by his own name to uphold. I will remember that promise and I will relent. And then we also finally see his gracious determination in in his promise that there would always be a remnant. There's always going to be a remnant. Verse 43, it says, but the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all of that, when they are in the land with their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them for I am the Lord their God. Right, what, is, what is he saying? Remember, he's telling them this in advance. He's telling them all of this in advance of it actually happening. And he's promising that although he would deal with them corporately, and although he would carry out those blessings and curses collectively as a whole, there would always be a remnant, even in exile. There would be a remnant that would remain fixed And maintain their grip upon his promise that he had made. He was giving them hope that no matter how bleak things got. That Israel would not be completely destroyed. As one commentator put it. Persistent disobedience would cause her, Israel. To forfeit her right to occupy the land of her inheritance for a season. But it did not threaten the annihilation of Israel, the seed of Abraham. 
God would have a people. One way or another, God was determined to have a people. And it was going to happen. Now, before we... I told you we're going to make a glancing blow at 27. So before we look at these three points that I want us to consider, I want us to think about 27 for just a minute. It focuses on vows. And at the time, people would make vows and they would show their commitment to the Lord. Uh, It would show... They were they were committing themselves to the Lord. It would show a specific course of action that they desired to take. And it was to um, communicate and prove loyalty and devotion to the Lord. And, and honestly, there are actually some that think that this is kind of tagged on at the end. It's, it's an epilogue and it's just this misplaced add-on at the end of the book. And it should have just ended at the... It would have made more sense to end with the blessings and, and curses and the stipulations in 26. But I, I believe there's something... I believe it's, it's here and it's, it's where the desire is to communicate to the people that while vows are not forbidden, and we're actually going to, well, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but vows are not forbidden, but vows are to be taken seriously. Vows are to be strongly considered. And, and I believe the placing of this is really important because really I think what it's communicating is, you know, Israel... Hear the blessings and the cursings, and I, and I know you desire to do the right thing, and you're going you're gonna to want to launch in and begin to make vows about how you're going to do it, but, listen, but, but your track record hasn't been all that great. And I want you to consider making those vows. Not, not forbidding them, but consider. Because the Lord... Because I, the Lord says, I, I take them very, very seriously. And I think in, in a way saying, really what I, what I want you to do is trust in my promises to you, not your promises to me. Trust in me. Because their vows were all based on their own self-determination. Whereas the Lord says, don't, don't trust in yourselves. Trust in me. Because he's just said, right? Here's what I'm going to do. Trust in me and not in yourselves. And I, and I could be oversimplifying things, but I think, um, I think that that's not out of the realm of possibility there. Now, now quickly, the three things that, that I want us to consider. And you already know the first one. It's, it's been a part of everything that we've considered as we've gone through this study together. And, and these chapters are no different than the rest of Leviticus. This book, th- these chapters as well, point us to Jesus. They point us to Christ. The way to approach God that's been laid out in Leviticus for us could not ultimately do what needed to be done. To enable humanity to dwell and to meet with and fellowship fully and finally with the Lord. It wasn't going to provide that unveiling of the Lord that needed to happen. But they did provide the book throughout all of those things that we've been looking at and studying. They've all been types and shadows and, and pointing to the one who could and would do that. It's been... It's been fantastic to see Jesus. Jesus has the greater tabernacle. To see Jesus as the great high priest or the greater priest. It's been wonderful to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. 
It, it's, and in these chapters, we see not only was he the great high priest, but he was also that full and final sacrifice that all those other sacrifices pointed to. But even in these chapters, in chapter 26, it was Jesus who lived perfectly for us that we might experience the blessings of God. And it was Jesus who took on our disobedience and our sin and therefore the curse that we deserved on our behalf. We bask in the blessings of the Lord and his face is turned toward us because of ourselves. No, but because of what Christ has done for us and completely and, and utterly perfectly fulfilling the law. And because of our, our typical breaking of it, right? the Lord took on the disobedience and he has secured for us. Right, His, his presence, the, the Lord's presence in our fellowship with him has been secured and it's not just a future, something we're looking forward to in the future. It is a present reality. And we're going to talk about that next week when we look at the incarnation for Christmas. It's a present reality. Second, we, we need to understand and, and look at ourselves as benefactors of God's kind intentions, of his firm stipulations and his gracious determination. Right? We are his people. So he is jealous and zealous for you and for me. He doesn't want us desiring or looking to or fellowshipping with or depending upon or trusting in or worshipping anyone or anything other than himself. He wants a fellowship that's he wants our fellowship to be exclusively with him. He is our creator. We've been created in his image. It's something that he he alone is worthy of. It's something that he desires. It's something for our good. He wants us to enjoy the weekly rhythm of the Lord's day because it's been created that we might do just that. He wants us to revere and not to profane his name or his person. But he is our redeemer. He has set us free from sin and death. He's ours. We're his. And then because of that, we've, as we've mentioned, actually, since we began over a year ago, we've been called to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Hey, we are to be holy for he is holy and he expects us to obey and his his promised blessings. He promises blessings as a result and he promises consequences for our disobedience as any parent would. But may we hear that in the midst of that, that this can be wrongly used and is wrongly used on a regular basis. And our obedience does not merit or earn God's favor. It does not earn or merit our salvation. And our obedience also doesn't guarantee that we will experience a healthy and wealthy and prosperous life without suffering, heartache or pain. That's not what we learn here. We're not promised if we obey a life without difficulty. We're not promised our best life now. But what we are promised is peace and joy and comfort and contentment in the midst of, in the midst of life circumstances, no matter what comes our way. And thanks be to God that he is gracious and patient and slow to anger 
and grants us the gift of repentance and promises us that at any point along the way, if we will turn from our sin and turn to him in faith and ask for forgiveness, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins because of what Christ has done for us. And we should also, by the way, we should also be encouraged that regardless of what the state of the visible church may look like. And if you look online, it's it's a lot of people have lost hope in the visible church. But despite what it may look like and what people may say, brothers and sisters, Christ continues to build his church. And he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is a promise that the promise of a remnant continues for you and me today. And then finally, again, I know we brushed up against it. and I've said that twice in verse in chapter 27, but we need to think carefully about the vows that we make. And I want us to think through, we're about to see vows in just a moment, whether that be to join the church, as we'll see Jordan and Valerie do, or baptize our children, or when elders and deacons are ordained next September. Lord willing, right? Chapter 22 of our confession outlines how we should approach vows, and we should approach them solemnly and with fear and with understanding how weighty they really are. And ultimately... We are to we are to always and only look and trust in and rest in the promises of the Lord rather than ourselves. That's not to say we don't consider our vows. We should consider our vows. We should take them seriously, and we should uh, they should hold us accountable. We, we should desire to fulfill that which we said. We need to be people of our word, but we need to trust in the Lord and His promises, not in our own. Right, because I don't know about you, but I can tend to be fickle and weak and forgetful and prone to wander. Thankfully, he is not. He is not. He remains a God of his word who is forever faithful. It is to him that we should look. May we always look to him. Let's pray together. Father, would you now... By your